0: The more you see something, the less you actually see it. The more you see something, the less you actually see it. The first few times that you see something that's amazing, it captures your attention. But after you see it over and over, it begins to be background noise. Think, for instance, of the first time that you saw the Rocky Mountains. It's incredible, massive structures jutting into the sky. But if you live in Denver, the Rocky Mountains can just be part of the backdrop to the city. Think of the first time that you saw the skyline of Indianapolis at night. Now it's just a marker as you drive home. Think of the first time that you were in Brown County and saw the leaves begin to change in the fall, and it was a stunning display of a multicolored carpet spreading over the forest. Now it's just another place to visit. The more you see something, the less you actually see it. What's can be true about the Rocky Mountains, the skyline of Indianapolis, and also the leaves in Brown County can also be true of your spiritual life. Maybe the first few months at this church you left stunned with gratitude, heart soaring in love of what God was doing and what you received, but over time it becomes easier to become a consumer, a critic, And to lose the awe of what it means together. Maybe your first few months with your small group were amazing. Love these people. And then it was easy to become annoyed with the uniqueness of each person. (laughs) Maybe you felt really fulfilled while you were serving in some area of ministry, and then it became kind of mundane. And what happened is the joy was gone. Paul Tripp warns that familiarity with the things of God will cause you to lose your awe. He writes, "You've spent so much time in scripture that the grand redemptive narrative with its expansive wisdom doesn't excite you anymore. You've spent so much time exegeting the atonement that you stand at the foot of the cross with little weeping." You spent so much time discipling others that you are no longer amazed at the reality of having been chosen to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You spent so much time unpacking the theology of Scripture that you've forgotten the end game is personal holiness. You spent so much time in strategic local church ministry planning that you've lost your wonder at the sovereign planner who guides your every moment. You spend so much time meditating on what it means to lead others in worship, but you have little private awe. I'm sure that you're familiar with this concern. It's easy for amazing grace to become rather mundane. Some of you are in that very position right now. After two years of a hard run and difficulties, your spiritual life is flagging a bit. You're reading your Bible, you're trying to pray. You're here receiving God's word in corporate worship, but if truth were to be told, there's very little passion. Your awe has been extinguished, or maybe it's just lower. Isaiah 30 to 33 can help you, it's helped me. Because Isaiah 30 to 33 is a rehearsing of two very important things that serve as the fuel for a reinvigoration of our awe. Or think of it this way. They serve as a catalyst for what it means to have a passion to follow Jesus. And those two things are, one, understanding what we're like. And secondly, understanding what God has done. And these two concepts are interwoven through these chapters in 30 through 33, and what we're going to see today is that our God not only saves, but the glorious message of Isaiah in these chapters is this, our God saves sinners. He saves sinners, people who don't deserve his grace, people who don't deserve his mercy. And for some of you, it's been... Way too long until you've stepped back and considered in your heart of hearts, God rescued me. I was a sinner and he gave me mercy. And allowing that to be the fuel for what it means to follow Jesus. So today we want to look at first, human rebellion, and then secondly, God's grace. So human rebellion serves as kind of the the backdrop, and then secondly, this reality of God's grace. Throughout chapters 30 to 33, Isaiah bounces back and forth between a focus on God's grace and a focus on human rebellion. It's as though Isaiah is saying, you're like this, God's like that. You're like this, God's like that. And so in these three chapters we see expressions of human rebellion that look like this. Pride, stubbornness, and complacency. Let's, let's see these as the backdrop. These are the things that God rescues human beings from. So first, pride. The text begins, ah, stubborn children. Ah is a word that we saw last week that is a statement of woe. He calls them stubborn children, and throughout the Old Testament, God's people are regularly rebuked, and they are said to have stiff necks. It's an appropriate image, isn't it? A stiff neck. It's what human beings do when we are filled with pride or we are resistant, we sort of Move our necks up. Or someone says something that we feel pretty good about how they're being positioned, and we're like, oh, really? Right? So there it is. Or parents, you know that sometimes when you're disciplining your children, they refuse to look at you. They turn away. And you're like, look at me. And they right? They don't, it's a symbol. The, The neck is demonstrating what's going on inside of the heart. Notice, though, how they're Pride manifests itself in verse 1 they carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. You could think of this as a summary of their problem. Remember that in context, the nation of Israel, or really, More specifically, the southern kingdom of Judah is facing a major threat with Assyria who has knocked off nation after nation after nation and they've defeated the northern kingdom of Israel and Assyria is making inroads into the nation of Judah. This is a real threat. The people are genuinely afraid. But in their fear... They pridefully don't seek the Lord's help in practical ways. In other other words, there is a disconnect between their temple worship and their daily life when it comes to trusting God. Ray Ortland says this about what's happening in this moment. It is possible to believe all the right things, but to negotiate everyday life by another wisdom, little different from the world. Isaiah's generation did that. They knew about the exodus, the saving power of God. They knew their Bibles, but in the hard business of daily life, they made their way by other ground rules. What Isaiah is speaking to is how easy it is to nod our heads in affirmation on Sunday and then go out Monday through Saturday and live as if God doesn't really matter. They carried out their own plans. Verse 2, they set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. Why why do they do this? Why do they go to Egypt? Why do we do it? Well, we find an important word in verse 1. They carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit. They look To Egypt, the same reason that we look to things, because it provides us security, safety, comfort, or in a word, control. You know, don't you, that every human being craves control. Things that are outside of our control challenge our autonomy, and as a result, when something threatens our autonomy, we immediately try and grab things that help us to regain our sense of security. And when we don't get those things, we can find ourselves angry, depressed, and anxious. And in these moments, trusting God seems really impractical. Frankly, Egypt feels safer than trusting in God, even though, in verse seven, Egypt's help is worthless, and empty so let me just ask you when you think about your ability to manage your own life where do you go to for control if you're a Christian where, where do you go instead of going to the Lord some of us go to knowledge we, we want to know what's happening some of us go to money We want to use our money in order to protect ourselves. Or some of us go to power. We want to be sure that our people are pulling the levers. And there's nothing wrong with knowledge or money or power. All those things are gifts from God, gifts from God that could be used really significantly unless your entire dependency on knowledge, money, and power causes you to negate trusting in God and instead putting your trust in those things. Isaiah 31 verse 1 says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So how do we express our rebellion? One of the ways we express it is in our prideful dependency on our own plans. Some of you have faced the thwarting of your plans because God has a bigger agenda in your life than you feeling in control of your life. And if you got everything that you wanted, you would find yourself in a position where the one thing that you needed, God himself, you wouldn't desire because you have everything you need. God builds gaps in order so that you will trust in God. Here's the second thing, and that is a stubbornness. And by this, Isaiah means just more than a general stubbornness, but specifically an unwillingness to listen. A stubbornness, refusing to listen. In fact, verse 9 makes this very clear. He says, for they are a rebellious children, or rebellious people rather, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. And then how do they express that unwillingness to listen? It's not that they're not listening at all, it's that they selectively listen. They say, according to Isaiah in verses 10 through 11, they say to the seers, do not see. They say to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. I love that. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Notice, church, that it wasn't that they wanted the messages to stop No, they wanted the prophets and seers to give them messages, but they wanted messages that were agreeable and that didn't challenge their idols. Usually, when a particular message gets too close to the vest of our protection of our idols, we react and say, don't talk to me about that. According to verse 12, they were desiring... The kind of content that affirmed their oppression and their perverseness. And as a result, they wanted wanted to hear people, hear from people who would make them feel better in their stubbornness. Look at verse 15. For thus says, the, Holy, or the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. You said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. We will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. The tragedy of the human condition is our constant refusal to listen and our refusal to follow God's ways. Third, there's also a level of complacency. Now, again, this is the the bad news. We'll come to the good news here in a moment. Go over to chapter 32 and verse 9. Again, Isaiah bounces back and forth between grace and judgment or mercy and an exposure of kind of what we're like, what what are we like, what is God like. And the final example we have is in verse 9 of chapter 32 He says, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. Now, just to be clear, this text speaks to more than just women. (laughs) They're representative of the entire culture. Even though the spiritual life of the nation is hanging by a thread, here are these people who are complacent. They really don't care. They like life the way that it is. Things seem to look pretty good as they look around them. Commentator Gary Smith says this, These women are victims of deceit and the political spinning of military events that made a bad situation look optimistic. Consequently, these women feel very secure and safe because their complacency was rationally based on the news that they heard from the royal court. They accepted the propaganda that they could put their hope in Egypt. And yet, despite all of these warnings from Isaiah, he invites the whole nation to turn. He warns them about their pride, their carelessness, their, their, their unwillingness to listen, their complacency. Despite all of those warnings, they looked at themselves and they're like, I actually think we're doing pretty good. Makes a lot of sense that we would not build an alliance with Egypt. Everything seems to be going okay when the reality is it wasn't. Pride, stubbornness, and complacency have always characterized us humans. We think we know better. We don't want to listen. We don't care about making changes. And the problem is, is that us human beings are prone to go back to our former ways and repeating the mistakes of the past. And what Isaiah wants us to remember is don't forget who you really are. Or maybe... A way to think about it this way would be, remember who you used to be. So that's the picture of human rebellion. The reason 30 through 33 is so amazing is because of what follows in terms of the beauty of God's grace. All of this rebellion Familiar as it is merely serves as the background for the beautiful demonstration of God's grace. What Isaiah would want you to know, what I want you to hear today is this, that as bad as our rebellion is, as bad as your sin is, as often as you've failed, God's grace is always greater still. And this is especially important to remember when the pressures of life are tempting us to put our trust in something other than him. And it's one of the reasons that Isaiah puts this material in his book because he knows that God's people, God knows that as his people, we need regular, hearty reminders of the power of God's grace because God's grace is how he woos us toward obedience and faithfulness. It's as though God says, why would you go here when you can go here? Why would you build your life on Egypt when you can place your trust in the sovereign king of the universe? It's one of the reasons why you need the regular gathering of God's people together on the Lord's Day. Why you need corporate worship. You need to regularly be reminded of the amazing grace of God so that it fuels your obedience. That you're reminded that I live my life not on my own performance, but on the very promise of a God who loves me we find this great summary of this in Isaiah 30 in verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. Notice this. In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Here is God's offering of grace. And it goes counter to how we naturally think. It's an offering to embrace repentance. That's what it means to return and an offering to embrace hope. That's what it means to rest in the Holy One of Israel. Repentance, just in case you're not familiar with this term, means a turning from one thing to another. In the New Testament, it means a change of mind. Like you you see something and you're like, I'm not gonna trust in that anymore. I'm gonna trust in Jesus. I'm not gonna build my life on my career. I'm gonna build my identity on who I am in Christ. I'm not gonna build my relationships on what I can get out of them. I'm gonna build my life on what it means to serve others in light of how Jesus has served me. I'm not gonna build my life on what I can get. I'm gonna build my life on what I can give. And that turn from this to that, to this to that, to this to that is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's the amazing way in which Christ changes people's lives. Because it isn't just that they're safe from their sins, oh, that is true, but it is he has come so into their life by the Holy Spirit that they see everything differently because their minds have changed, their hearts have changed. Listen, if you're a Christian, you love things that you would never love were it not for Jesus. You think about things in ways that would never be true about you if Jesus hadn't invaded your life and brought you from darkness to light, from death to life. By by coming to you and pouring out his grace upon you, by offering you the forgiveness of sins, Jesus gives you a new identity, a new purpose, and a whole different way to see the world. Human beings don't naturally look at returning and rest or quietness and trust as our strength. But the cross didn't make any sense until you understood or understand the whole plan of God. Isaiah here is helping us to realize, where do you find real peace? Some of you are, you're in a desperate search right now for peace. And this kind of peace and confidence that serves to strengthen God's people sits at the foundation of their lives because they know that their ultimate hope is not in earthly things, but in a God who loves them. The old hymn says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Some of you are so filled with anxiety right now, and part of the problem is not just the difficult circumstances in your life. They are difficult, and it has been a very difficult season for you. I want to acknowledge that 100%. But the problem is, is you're trying to tackle that issue on your own with your plans and your ingenuity and your thoughts and your ability to try and figure it all out. And what Isaiah is saying is you can make your plans, but they're not the Lord's plans. Isaiah 30:18 says, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are those who wait for him. What a statement. I mean, who likes to wait? No one likes to wait. And yet, waiting from a spiritual standpoint is a statement of trust in God. We're waiting on God to return to the person and work of Jesus in the second coming. We're waiting on him in order to help us to know what we ought to do in various situations. And here is God waiting for his people. He's waiting for them. Look at verses 19 through 22 of chapter 30. Here's a future day, a day of, of glory Isaiah encourages people in their waiting. This day is going to come. Again, it sounds like the book of Revelation. For a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord, listen to this, give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes will see your teacher. And your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the right and when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. That's the hope that awaits for those who find their rest in Christ. It reminds me of Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is the protector of our of his people. In fact, in chapter 31 and verse 4, he's described as a growling lion or as hovering birds in chapter 31 and verse 5. There's so much about this that relates to how the people are living now, so much of it how it relates to what is to be their future. In chapter 33, they're still dealing with the threat of Assyria. Chapter 33, verse 1, Ah, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. So they're they're dealing with a real scenario on the ground. Their, their, Their heroes are crying in the street. Look at verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in their streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. In other words, God is resisting his people in order to get their attention. God wants them to be awakened to their need of him. And we find this in chapter 33 in verse two, while the situation is getting difficult and dark, God invites the people to say this, oh Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning and our salvation in time of trouble. Chapter 5, or chapter 33, verse 5 says, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times. Notice that. He, he will be the stability of your times. Some of you are placing your stability in all sorts of other things. And one of the lessons from this last 18 to 24 months will be how much Good God did in the hardship to make you realize how much you needed him. Look at chapter 33, verses 20 through 22. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up. Nor will any of its cords be broken, but there the Lord Himself, the Lord in majesty, will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, no majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our King, and He will save us. See what I say He's doing? He's calling God's people, don't be stiff-necked, don't be full of yourself, don't be complacent. Don't just listen to people who agree with you and try and make your life better by assuaging your sinfulness. He's saying, realize who you are. Acknowledge how desperate you are of your need of redemption and continual renewal. Because here is a God who is glorious in terms of his graciousness, waiting for his people in order to turn back to him. God is gracious to rebellious people. He aims, church, to redeem the proud, the stubborn, the complacent person. And you know how he does that? With kindness and patience and grace. How long has it been since you have just stopped and considered how gracious and kind God has been to you? If you're not yet a Christian, it may be that God is using this season in order to surface your need to put your trust in something other than yourself. And my hope and prayer is that you would see that God is pursuing you. He's after you because he loves you. To those of us who are Christians, let me invite you to consider three applications. Number one, brother or sister, what is your Egypt? What do you put your trust in outside of the promises of God? Honestly, where does prayer and seeking the wisdom of God fall into your calculus for how you live every day? Or is the only time that you seek God when you run into a wall? And it may be that God has to keep sending walls your way because if the walls aren't there, you won't pray. Where do you go besides the Lord when you are seeking control? Here's the second thing. Do you savor the grace of God? Do you savor the grace of God? It's it's possible to be so familiar with the grace of God, to see the grace of God, that you've lost the awe of the grace of God. And as a result, you can spend your time complaining about all the things you don't have when you're missing the very thing that you do have. You can begin to live out of duty and performance and perfectionism. This text today calls us to be reminded of the powerful grace of God extended to sinners that serves as a motivation for all that we do. There's nothing wrong with knowledge, nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with power unless those things are the things that you savor more than the grace of God. And then finally, number three, are you ready to turn to him today? In a moment, we're going to sing, his mercy is more. And the reason that we're gonna sing that is because there's some of you that, after a long season of languishing and spiritual struggling, it would be good on this Lord's Day for you to be able to say, God, I love your grace, and that's not a new thought for me, but I need my heart and my soul to be rekindled in the power of what it means to live in the amazing grace of God. Because the powerful and transforming truth in the Bible is this, sin abounded, you bet, like a Super Bowl, sin is bounding all the time. Last week, sin bounded in your life. But the good news is this, grace abounds even more. It doesn't matter what you did last night or last week. It doesn't matter where you've been or the shame of your past. The fact of the matter is is God offers to you mercy and grace that's so counterintuitive to how our world works that Jesus stands open-armed, ready to receive back those who are weary and heavy laden so he can give you rest. Some of you are so tired. You're tired because you're trying to grab a hold of something that only God can grab a hold of. And I'm not saying let go and let God. What I am saying is why not invite him into the equation? Why do you go to Egypt? In returning and rest, there is peace and safety. Our rebellions are many, but God's mercy is more. As Jake and the team lead us this morning as we sing this song, we're gonna be standing together. Some of you, the best expression of your heart would be just to stand right where you are and sing. That'd be great, you can do that, no problem. There's others who it might be really good and helpful for you while we're singing just to come out from where you're seated or standing rather and come right here on the, at the front and just kneel as a way to say, God, physically I'm gonna come and say, I need some rekindling in my life today. Coming forward doesn't change everything, but it changes something, and what it changes is staying where you are and taking a step, and I invite you to join me and others as we just take a few moments to say, God, thank you that your mercy is more. Let's stand together and respond to the Lord.